right, check it out. It's episode 21 of Not About Food. Thank you for tuning in. In this episode, I'm chatting with BBC journalist and long-term Twitter mutual of mine, Sarah Robertson, about living with emetophobia and anorexia. Um, If you're not familiar with the term emetophobia, don't worry, we do cover that in the episode. My dog just sneezed, you might have heard that, and there she goes again. Um, We have another listener message that was absolutely lovely to receive. Rachel DM'd me on Twitter to say, Hi Phoebe, I just wanted to thank you for the Not About Food podcast, which I've recently discovered. I'm years into recovery, but due to the pandemic and various personal issues, I'm having a little wobble right now. In terms of headspace, though, not in behaviour, thank goodness. Your podcast is helping to reality check what's in my head, as well as giving me encouragement and the knowledge I'm not alone. I wish you all the best with your continued recovery. Thank you, Rachel. It means so much that this podcast is helping you. And if you want, you can get in touch on Twitter or Instagram at notaboutfoodpod or email notaboutfoodpod at gmail.com whether you have a message or some feedback or you want a guest on the show as well. We don't have a podcast without guests. We have a coffee page if you want to help us improve our recording gear on www.ko-fi.com forward slash notaboutfoodpod and all contributions will be hugely appreciated. Before listening any further, please check the content warnings in the show notes. Once you've done that, please enjoy my conversation with Sarah Robertson about emetophobia. I'll tell you what, I don't even know what episode number this is. Um, I'm here with Sarah Robertson, who is an eating disorder campaigner, someone that I've known of for a really long time, but this is our first like proper face-to-face-ish interaction. And today we're going to talk about our both of our experiences of having anorexia and emetophobia. So, hi Sarah, how are you? I'm really good, thank you Phoebe. It's really like, after so many years, it's nice to put a kind of face and a voice to a, a Twitter profile. <laughs> Such is the way online, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, very few of the guests I've had on I've ever met in person. But quite often I will have a guest that I've only found through looking for a guest. So this is really interesting because I think I can pinpoint knowing of you to about beginning of 2013, maybe earlier. But I just remember our mutual friend Alona posted that you were doing something on the radio about your eating disorder. And I tuned into that. And I was in the depths of a terrible relapse at that point as well. I'll tell you what, I don't really remember anything about what you said. I just remember it was you. (laughs) Oh, well, I think that that stands for something. I think, yeah, it was about 2013 because my, I want to say my proper battle with recovery or my recovery started proper in in 2011. uh, you know we think that there's dates it kind of is very flexible isn't it when you actually start recovery but um I hit crisis and was in recovery from th- 2011 so 2012 was pretty much right after 2013 is when I was kind of emerging in being um aware uh, and being a little bit more um bit more recovered <laughs> um so yeah it's probably 2013 because actually that that interview on Radio Stoke is how I I do what I do today um so it, it was 2013, you're correct. Um, and I was on um, BBC Radio Stoke, uh, where I now am a manager. And I had done some kind of campaigning work with my local MP. I'd won the Beat um, Campaigner of the Year uh, award. 
and it was just a whirlwind of my you know being a journalist having your local paper and your local radio station get in touch and say hey can we chat to you I'm like no no that's what I do um <laughs> not what you do to me um but obviously having st still being like in the depths of recovery at that point um really in the thick of it I still remember to this day my therapist going oh can you make um make like Wednesday at like 10 or whatever I was like no I'm on the radio and then it was like the next day she's like can, can you make next Wednesday at 10 no no I'm, I'm freelancing and I remember the conversation I was like you went in to be interviewed and you came out with a job and I was like e yeah <laughs> so it was 20, <laughs> it was definitely 2013 and I think I'd spent two years before that being really vocal on Twitter like you said with Alona and we were a bit more I want to say we're a bit more like oh, I want to say gobby but it's so ineloquent um <laughs> but no no I get that though we called out without swearing called a lot of the bs out that was around mm -hmm. and especially a lot of people when you're in recovery that pretend you're more recovered than you are and do the you know do as I say not as I do and I was a bit more like yeah I, I'm, I'm currently like walking around Stafford drinking a hot chocolate waiting for my dietitian appointment and I was like how anorexic do I want to be right now I remember thinking and I remember specifically walking to an appointment with my dietitian and thinking like, what am I doing? I need to out myself. I need to make myself accountable. I need to um, be honest with me. And then for me being honest with me and being a journalist, I was like, I need to be honest with like, whoever it is that's listening, like the 10 people that were following me at the time. And it started this kind of, um, this path of just me being quite gobby about my eating disorder. And then I don't know how it got to where I did, it just kind of escalated. I think I'm a writer, I'm a journalist, I'm a, you know, I needed an outlet, I was bored like so bored and like I'm really bad with numbers which is really funny for someone who's suffered with anorexia for so long but I'm so bad with numbers <laughs> and I just thought I need to do words again you know um and it's really helped me and if I dared one day to scroll back through my Twitter fit timeline I think I've got like something like 80,000 tweets or something ridiculous and if I scroll back then I'm sure that I'd just cringe at the things I wrote but obviously it helped connect yourself and me and people like Alona which you know carried me through some really dark times actually yeah and I think it's it's amazing how for you campaigning led to your you know a shift in your career and in a very very different context so has mine um going to work in mental health and you know with the plans to go on to study to be a therapist and how this many years into our recovery it's still we've it's interspersed I mean yours is a much more worthy career change than mine <laughs> I feel very like no I, I do you know what I think it's just if, it, if it's in you and it I can't think of the bigger reset button than being in a mental health crisis and you have that time to think a little bit more and when you do when you are in recovery and you find that kind of um, release from the depths of, of suffering then I think that you you have more time to kind of consider what what caused you to get to where you were um, and what it is that's going to keep you going to keep you out of that and for me, it was, um, I trained as a journalist, I did journalism at university, um, worked in magazines in London, then moved to gymnastics coaching. Uh, yes, I am a walking stereotype. I was the gymnast. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but went back into gymnastics and was coaching um, when I got really sick um, and obviously stopped because of the, the visible impact I was having on my gymnast at that point. And I knew when to walk away. And, and well, I knew I needed help. Being threatened with a section obviously made that very clear. But, you know, I, I walked away from that. And, and then there's no way I was going to go back into that or that anybody around me was going to allow me to get into that situation again. So kind of 
I, I used to sit with my therapist and whoever would listen and in group therapy and just talk about how I knew what I'd lost um, but I knew I wanted something back but it wasn't that um, but equally what I guess what underpins the emetophobia and the anorexia there was some I've always maintained this there's some parts of my personality that led me down that path that also put parts of me that I've always wanted to keep and I kind of embrace in the right way so I am driven I am competitive I am um, determined and I I put my sights high yes I am a perfectionist I think I shared something today like I'm a recovering perfectionist and an aspirational was it make doerist or averageist or something there was some like random word there's a quote that I saw the other day that, that, that summed it up perfectly but you know all those things when I was in therapy I didn't just sit there and wallow I was like okay I'm going to offer to help on the interview panels for kind of healthcare assistance on the ward I'm going to speak up about my recovery and my illness I'm going to go and you know campaign at my local MP and then I'm I'm going to talk about it mainly like I said I was bored I needed an outlet um and I didn't want to just sit there and rot literally so um like yourself like I suppose your illness has driven you in a different direction and there's parts of your personality that that, that meant that you got ill really and that also the good bits you can then put back into society like I said in a much worth, more worthy way than for me <laughs> I literally had this conversation at work the other day so I was doing a group on um the female acute ward and we were looking at um strength and self-esteem and this isn't these aren't service users with eating disorders it's a, it's a general acute uh, psychiatric ward and I literally talked about how some of my strengths were or strengths or attributes or characteristics that were really present in my illness not just the anorexia but mental mental illness in general but how I've managed to utilize them in recovery like that stubbornness like the determination those kinds of things and kind of having some high standards as well they have been really really debilitating in many ways but trying to turn them into something that will allow me to achieve something worthy of it not achieve destruction Mm, I completely agree and I think there's there's definitely a fine line but I also think it's what's driven me through like I think if I think back to 2011 and before but I mean like crisis point as an adult 2011 what made me get better um I think I I wish I'd realized that these these attributes could be used in different ways that weren't toxic which weren't destructive a long time ago um which is why I like talking about them now um because hopefully someone notices them in themselves and then turns it around before it kind of gets to where it got to for me and others like yourself I I just it's what kept me going to be honest with you Phoebe like because if I hadn't uh, noticed those things or been told like none of them some of them weren't easy to spot it's like literally been like hammered into me by kind of the the clinical team that I worked with but if I hadn't have kept those bits of me alive I don't think I'd be alive and it's it's what gave me hope it what gave me hope. and I was always really quite thankful that I hit crisis point kind of in my mid-20s because I knew what I'd lost if that mm. makes sense I knew who I was I knew because if maybe it got this bad when I was a teenager I mean spoiler alert they didn't diagnose me properly um, <laughs> for a long time um, because I wasn't underweight shock um, but you know the, that never happens oh no oh no obviously I was not a skeletal teenager so I obviously did not have anorexia I was just scared of food um you know and sick so but I'm kind of glad it took so long to to get to the point it did in a way and to get noticed because actually 
it gave me a bit more of a fighting chance because I couldn't imagine being a 13 year old girl and not knowing what you'd lost and then try and fight for something when people say yeah but mm. what about a job and what about a boyfriend and what about a career and what about a life and a house and a family and if you were a teenager or earlier at thinking that you think what does that matter all I want to do is be thin or all I want to do is be lighter you know it, it's it's uh it must be really hard <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't that person I mean, that's it I mean I wasn't and I've talked about this on the podcast before how there were like indicators of control issues around food and you know my own strange judgments and morals around food from a really really like under 10 um but it didn't manifest severely till my mid-teens but you're absolutely right I hadn't experienced work or much of a social life because I wasn't a very I wasn't especially popular and I experienced bullying again kind of like a stereotype almost but yeah I didn't have a sense of loss because there it was all I knew yeah you hadn't yet you hadn't lost you hadn't like gate you hadn't yet gained something to, to lose it mm. really and that's it and every, even though the you know the eating disorder came in my mid-teens I'd lived with OCD for years before that and that was the original thing that took life from me and prevented any development um into things so that's another thing that meant yes it being having a mental health problem of one sort or or another is um yeah what I knew and this is a really convenient and easy way to segue into emetophobia so I have been emetophobic for as long as I could remember so from the age of four ish I'm thinking nursery school I've got memories of the teacher at nursery school saying she had a tummy ache and me avoiding her all day the difficulty is I can't say the thing that it is we are phobic of still to this day so if any listeners who aren't aware can you can you tell us what emetophobia is so likewise I I I can't remember pre-emetophobia um I know exactly what the trigger point was for me um and I was seven it was December 1992 but I think it was the 7th of December 92 which is like remarkable and I literally could I won't I won't but I could talk you through hour by hour of that day which obviously in therapy is a bit of a well we need to discuss that day um (laughs) which I've done for like the last 30 years and still haven't got anywhere so you the with the day itself but in terms of emetophobia for me it's um obviously the fear of vomit and and also the fear of um anything that could cause that to happen so for me it's the the fear of a a bug it's still to this day if someone says they've got like neurovirus or a bug I'm like oh my god like stay away from me when how how long you been like why are you here all the questions why are you able to many questions but also the fear of feeling the fear like just even the fear of uh, for me belly aches for example like I, I still think, oh God, please don't get a bellyache. Oh, I, I, you, the fear of something spoiling an event, like getting ill, spoiling an event. I'm scared of that. So then I'm scared of events because I'm like, oh well, if if I've got a booking for a social event next Saturday, I still now worry that I worry that I'm worrying that I'm going to feel sick on that day. So then I might not go to that event because I'm worried that something might happen at the event. So that so for me, it's a fear of everything. So sick, fear of tummy aches, fear of events in case somebody's sick. The fear of like, I mean, to be honest, we've just lived through a pandemic for the last two years. I'm just glad it wasn't like vomiting wasn't one of the symptoms. Right? 
when Delta came along and some people were having neurovirus style symptoms, that's when I became more, like hundred percent when I came more fair of it. I'm more, I was probably more careful at that point. And one of the highlights of the pandemic for me, if we're going to be in a positive attitude, is like people are sanitizing more, like public toilets are cleaner, like you know, like people uh the presenteeism is less at work. If you feel a little bit ill, you have a day off. Like a hundred percent like positives of the pandemic and like face masks I feel like there's been less tummy bugs because of face masks and you know and public toilets like I said being cleaner and their rules and I hope they continue being so I love that there are even now when things are really lax this is the end of February 2022 shops supermarkets especially still have the means of cleaning your trolley or your basket which I've been doing since I was a kid anyway, but it's nice that I don't have to use my own products that I buy myself. Exactly. And it's not like a secret little thing that you have to do anymore. Like I have a two-year-old son, um, which is a complete minefield. No, I know everybody's thinking, what are you going to do when he's sick? He hasn't yet been sick. Touch word, like, so we're okay right now. I've got questions. (laughs) (laughs) It will happen at some point. I get it, but he has a dad. That'll be fine. Um, You know, it's, you know, for him sitting in a trolley yesterday, like it was, t- whether going to lead to like mental Ill health issues in the future. But, you know, before when I touched the trolley and we took it to the the uh, supermarket entrance, he was like, mama, mama, like spray, spray. Can I have gel? And like he's two. And he thinks it's weird that we go to shops. He's like, he tells me to put my face mask on. I mean, I'm so proud. Um, but equally, we don't know what we've created there. However, if it's a more clean society or more hygienic society, then like, so be it. Um, (laughs) And whether that's my illness is talking or not, I don't care because I'm proud of this nation for cleaning trolleys. Um, I I thought I thought these exact thoughts, like even in the context of knowing that I'm speaking to to you today, I did think when I was at the supermarket, I was like, I'm like totally okay with cleaning my trolley for like ever. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've been buying anti-back wipes since I was maybe 15 to have on my person. And before then, it would be a matter of like using spray and kitchen roll and stuff. And my usage of them has decreased massively, considering, you know, when my OCD and emetophobia were at their worst, it was two packets a day easily. Um, And now I get through one a week, maybe. So it's a huge, huge difference. But yeah it was always so weird and shameful and people would be would question it or even make fun I got it. bullied at school for it. I remember clearly being in class and like people pretending to be sick next to me because they thought it was funny because I'd have a panic attack and like I don't like burping either so like if people burp I hate it um which is great with a two-year-old boy whose dad teaches him to burp you know it's like can you please not um but he I remember being at primary school and being on coaches and being scared of the kid that got like travel sick Mm -hmm. and and sitting as far away as possible and I was seen as a bit of a naughty kid because I'd sit on the back because obviously the sick kids sit at the front next to the teacher and it was just I kind of hid it in ways that you know like that or I'd obviously be off school if there was a bug going around and stuff but the way that it separated me as a school a school like I wouldn't go away on the field trips and stuff in primary school and I came home because I was scared of the food and the, the lack of control I would have over the food and if I think about being at high school um not trusting the the food cooked for me by the canteen which is why I'd hike my you know my lunch in and 
eat it in like a separate area and if I think about being at university and the kitchen and all those kind of things and the control I had over the food you know I'm vegetarian people said oh you're only vegan and vegetarian for like because you're anorexia that's my voice of people that say that to me and I'm like actually um I'm probably more vegan and vegetarian because of emetophobia than I am anorexia actually so bugger off um that's a really good point um I was I had a couple of years as being vegetarian as a teenager that were because because of animals I didn't really know anything about the environmental impact at the time like mid-2000s wasn't really talked about much but yeah it was just animals but also increasingly so the fear of food poisoning from meat and funnily enough my younger sibling who is is works on this podcast and does the producing and editing and stuff they had food poisoning when they were must have been 10 and after that was terrified of meat and rice and to this day that's still kind of true and they don't eat meat now either and to be honest I do feel bad that my emetophobia along with that incident then kind of influenced them to have the same kind of fear as me maybe not to the extent that I used to have it but it's it's really debilitating I remember being in hospital for my eating disorder and people other patients telling me I just needed to get over it because it's a fact of life and I wanted to say you know eating's a fact of life right and we're all here because of the eating thing (laughs) and we have to we have to do the eating thing to live it's not something that you can avoid I avoided my phobia experiencing it firsthand for nearly 20 years it's we're, we're very good at that I think mine was I could tell you it's probably my whole entire life on one hand how many times I've experienced it firsthand and I, I think that's just hopefully luck of our <laughs> of our um, ability to stay clean but it's also you know obviously the the trait the habits behaviors of said illnesses uh, both my eating disorder and of uh, emetophobia that that have meant that I've avoided it um so it, you know it, it and it, it but you constantly live in fear of something that happens so very rarely um which is the, the cruel which is the cruelty of it really I think in a way but it's yeah like you it's it's happened very few times and even saying that I hesitated because I didn't want to say it in case it happens <laughs> and yes, I, could- I get worried I um will jinx it by saying that and I remember one of the when I when I had long hair many years ago this was one of my thought processes that I also know is ridiculous and irrational but that's the phobias are irrational that's kind of what defines them is that I was worried like if I didn't tie my hair up I could get ill and then it will get in my hair but if I do tie my hair up I'm tempting fate it's so it like totally makes sense to me but then we've got very similar pathways in our mental illness journey, if you can call it that. Um, and it, it, it's, little, it's little things like that that people don't notice, but it does affect your everyday life because you think it, you know, it, it's if you, I can't, I, I, did, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, if I'm honest with you, but like the, there's things I've done my whole entire life that I probably don't, you can't even think about them because they just happen. There's probably stuff that I do that, that is tied in still um, that to met that, that just is part of me like we said if we can both can't think of a time without it then you know then how we went to define what is that and what is just us because it is morphed into us what I would say is that the 
that he met had uh, masked the anorexia for a long time in me, um, but also s- saved me from going under with the eating disorder. And I say that um, in two ways. One, the food that was my safe food was not my anorexic safe food. That was a complete internal battle for me um, for a long time. And in a way, my the anorexia helped me overcome a lot of the emet which is really picky I know that sounds but it did like the therapy they never really helped me with that um as a byproduct um anorexia would already help me recover from a lot of it so yeah a lot of the 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 anorexic habits helped me actually paradoxically recover from the emet so um, I won't go into too much detail but obviously my safe foods for uh, for that were not the anorexic safe foods so for example as a child I lived on toast white thick bread like literally my anorexic brain's worst nightmare um that would that that is what I lived on and um white pasta and cheese um and my god we're just the, exactly the same I think for me it was also an element of my neurodivergence and what would I'm discovering um potentially autism is having very plain and very samey foods all the time someone asked me not long ago actually like um I share a lot of my son's meals in a parenting way being vegan obviously doing vegan baby led weaning meant that there's a, there's fewer people that are doing the same thing as you um so I've shared those um actually one of my family who's not been very supportive in my whole recovery and life said to me oh is it just your anorexia coming out in different ways no because it's my son's food and yeah, whatever like get over it my dog's arrived I'm so sorry like it's but you can, you can hear it <laughs> um yeah uh, the dog's just come to visit today but yeah so the relationship with food is so complicated and my safe foods and I'm very you talked about passing your I've kind of kind of moved on a, a jump ahead here but that you sort of passing on your emetophobia and habits to your siblings the pressure when you're a mom and have had an anorexia and, and still struggle with emet is that I don't want like my son to have have that you know but naturally I prepare his food and naturally you know it's like let's go and wash our hands let's go and do this let's anti back the side and I do I do think like am I just teaching him good hygiene or am I making it an issue uh, around food and, and food and hygiene etc I try not to go how should you, have you got a tummy ache how are you feeling like, I, I, I avoid that I mean he's still very young but still old enough to, to realize these things um, but it is such a complicated sort of arena is that the right word to say arena like uh, aspect of life like you you touched on there with your the people within the unit um, when you're in recovery is the why don't you you know it's just food it's just this why oh, I, I'm trying not to rant about it but you know it's it, that's that it's not just the most cliche thing that people say all the time and you know people people say oh you know don't worry about it too much he's gonna be fine you're fine everything's fine I'm like okay let's just pretend that things don't happen and things aren't hard um as parents and they are and actually I've had a quite an easy breeze with that if I'm completely honest with you and we can talk about that more in a bit if you want but you, in, in terms of the safe food versus the the unsafe food and the habits, I'm thankful for anorexia. And that's so weird to say, but I think I'd still be worse with EMET if it wasn't for anorexia, mainly because it got to the point where I would eat my non-safe food in hope that it sort of made me sick so I would lose weight. 
it never made me sick by the way thank goodness I was also really scared of bulimic people people with bulimia like they were like oh my god no who are you what are you what are you <laughs> what are you doing like uh, I, I just didn't get it but I was also really envious they weren't scared of sick and that sounds really but I think at the depths of eating disorders people will get that that you know whenever you know I had a few friends that suffered with bulimia who who said to me like it's a, it's a different beast of an illness and I never would claim to understand what they've they've lived through um the same as they weren't but this whole idea of this hierarchy of eating disorders with anorexia at the top um hypothetically I used to put bulimia higher because I felt like they weren't scared of sick and that sounds like a really perverse and I, I can't explain that to you I can't explain it out I'm probably a psychotherapist could probably explain it out to me it finally released me from the grasp of emetophobia, which I would still say had a stronger hold on me than, and still does, than, than the eating disorder. And that's really, but maybe that's the longevity of having it. But the food rules, now, you know, I was just saying to you a minute ago about the, the rules I had about not eating with other people and about the only eating certain foods and repeating them and, uh, and then controlling them and not liking situations where I don't I'm like hello like that was screaming anorexia at people for a long time and I think there's notes in from when I was seven that I asked to see when I was in there because I went back to the same unit when I was older I was like I demand my notes <laughs> you have to give them to me or I'll FOI you and it's um <laughs> I told you I was like that I was literally like that at the unit. <laughs> um <laughs> but you know it's the uh, my parents had raised at the time when I was kind of nine um we're really concerned this is developing into anorexia because of Sarah will literally only eat frosties um <laughs> you know it's all rice krispies or whatever and I was like nine uh, and no one did anything and I went back at 13 and nobody did anything I went back at 18 at university nobody did anything um I got a therapist um in London when I was in my early 20s um that I got referred to and she was awful like I'm talking awful that literally told me to go and order a vente rather than a grande like iced coffee and get over it and whatever and I collapsed in the center of London after work and <laughs> she was just like well please get to your nearest bakery and you need to eat x y and z and I was just like yeah yeah okay <laughs> not happening <laughs> I'll grab a can of diet drink instead you know if only people could would just tell us what to eat I know I mean go figure I wrote a blog post which now I like it was completely about my stepmom and a conversation that, that about um it was eggs and red sauce I think there was this whole thing about like uh, she'd said that she really can't and to this day probably doesn't eat red sauce and eggs um together because just doesn't go um, no mental illness no eating disorders nothing just you know food preferences I don't like that with that and I said but you physically can eat that and she's like no I can't I absolutely can't eat that it just it just doesn't happen you cannot have red sauce on eggs on toast I was like yeah but you can like you could eat that you could physically could eat that she went I absolutely can't I said so st-. and I was like okay if that's the case stop having to go at me and saying you can just eat your meal plan because I physically can't and she said yeah but it's different you've been told to you're ill no no it's exactly the same it is 100% the same like there's something I can't explain to you like you can't explain to me why you cannot eat red sauce and eggs I cannot explain to you why I can't eat that meal plan and I remember getting into an argument about it and I wrote a blog post that came out um, I think my dad was like if you take it down absolutely not it makes sense love a good analogy and it was another one of those um so I left it up and it's so true and I think that's what people say like it doesn't matter if you're sick you're just sick just drink 
just have a drink like go out to that party you know have another drink because you know if you just got hangover and you're sick it's just sick um if you do that and you know don't every, every everybody's sick now and again yeah, yeah yeah but I can't explain to you why I'm so scared of that situation like I can't explain to you why that is the worst thing that could ever happen to me and everyone's like oh yeah but it happens to everybody yeah it doesn't mean you know food happens to everybody <laughs> everybody eats but some people end up eating disorder, some people don't it happens to everybody but it it's not physically bad to avoid it as much as possible. Now, the way it impacts your life in the ways that you do what you do to avoid it or prevent it, as we both know, is can be really serious and you know affect every every aspect of your life. But you have to eat. You have to. But you don't have to be ill to survive. That's not that's not a mechanism we actually. And it is there because you know where if say you've got a virus, it's to omit the virus it's to get rid of it or if you've got food poisoning it's to remove something from your body it's uh, it is serving a purpose in its own way but yeah if you go 20 years without doing it that's not unhealthy but you can't go 20 years without eating yeah as much as we may have tried <laughs> I mean I gave it my best shot I mean yeah um, <laughs> but you know it's yeah, like you're right like um you you can't nothing bad comes from not happening but that didn't help nothing bad comes from it not happening no but I think the more it can happen maybe if it happened more to me then I would have had more exposure and obviously we know with research on phobias exposure helps so you know when you read therapy it is exposure I mean a lot of I don't know about you but a lot of the therapy that I had was exposure to unsafe foods emetophobia unsafe foods so I was adamant kind of um the foods that I'd had before i had a first-hand experience of of it that we worked through me trying them to see that they, they're not always going to poison me and I remember at one point in my um I was at university and uh, so I would have been like 19 or 20 I hadn't gotten diagnosed with an eating disorder yet uh, just at that I remember being at my ex-boyfriend's house um on a Saturday morning after been out raving on the Friday night and I felt sort of hangover and I thought well I'm gonna be I'm gonna be sick anyway I'm just gonna I'm just going to eat a food that's unsafe that I've, that I've not ate for years. It was Muller Crunch Corners, by the way. This is, a, <laughs> this is completely not anorexic based, by the way. This is pre any of the restrictions. And I, um, I remember going to the shop, buying this Muller Crunch Corner and being so like joyous about having ate it and not have been sick. And I'd like literally for like 10 years of my life before had never eaten these yogurts, even though I like, used to love them because I was adamant that that had caused a sickness episode. And it didn't, but it's really weird how I literally could talk you through step by step going to the shop and buying it and choosing it and whatever and and coming back. Mm. And then when I was um, then I didn't have it again for ages. And then when I was ill with anorexia, I was just like, oh, like I've maintained weight and I've gained weight and I've done this and that. I'm like, but I'm having a mother corner because it'll make me sick. And then I won't have anything to do with it. And then the mirror. And I went and voice mother corner and I was just like, Etta. And obviously I was absolutely fine. <laughs> and obviously I was not sick. And and the world did not stop spinning. And I was like, I literally have gone back. I, I know this, it's completely illogical, but this sort of, I suppose it's like self-harm, isn't it? I'm just going to eat this thing that makes me feel sick. So I'm going to eat it so I feel sick. And it's such a destructive little circle that I had with bloody yogurt. Maybe that's why I'm vegan, <laughs> to stop me being <laughs> self-destructing on yogurt. Oh, I tell you what, I wish there were vegan crunch corners available because epic like oh. I'm, muller, I'm muller rice like literally I mean I'm giving yes, a bit please. of 
<laughs> Vegan Muller. I've tweeted Muller before. No, it wasn't Muller. I've tweeted Outpro before saying, can you do this? And then they replied saying, like, sorry, but we do do this, this and this. I'm like, it's not the same. Not the same. It's like not the they, same I... if, you, if you buy the crunchy bits separately. I want the pot where you, where you fold it. And it I want into, the Bianca yeah. yogurts with the chocolate covered rice crisp and chocolate cornflakes <laughs> and the banana yolla. Yes. That's literally what I want in my life. And if anybody's listening to this, they can make that happen. Please do. And I want and I want the strawberry Muller rice. Thank you. Um, but all oh, the caramel actually. I've digressed. Custard, but, you know the custard oh, one. So good. Oh my god, that is so good. But you know <laughs> they are really good. <laughs> I can't break ten years of veganism and. <laughs> If we're talking about muller rice, but um, rice puddings, but you know, it, it's so interlaced, and like I said to you before, like it, it masked the anorexia for so long because people, I just had a sick thing, and I was scared of food because of it, and I was restrictive because of it, and that I hated my stomach area. This is one therapist said to my parents and to me at university that I hated my. I'm actually the one in the twenties said to me, "You hate your stomach area because you've got such a negative connotation because of." where the stomach is and the bowel and sickness and stuff and that's why I hated my stomach I hated my stomach because it felt grotesque to me it felt that it was in my way I didn't want it to be there Uh, and it still is like again post baby it's a new battle of working relationship with said area they are so intertwined and there's there's not many people that I know that have got both um, concurrently um, and that run together. But as I've met more people like yourself um, on the social media circuit sphere, there are more of us that have both that go together. There's definitely a link between it's food control and me slipping back to me knowing, okay, so... I used to be able to control the situation when I was a child. And as a child, you have very little control over your life except what's on your plate. Um, mm. and, uh, and I relish that control. I like that control. I used to c- control where my family would go, where we would eat, where we'd go on holiday, what we would and wouldn't do, the day trips we could or could not go on, um, how far we could or could not drive because I was scared that my sister would get car sick. And you know she used to sometimes. So that I literally controlled everything in our family's life when I felt like I had no control over my life as an adult and that everything was slipping, um, career wasn't in control. Um, I'd chosen the wrong pathway and this had happened, that had happened. The first thing I went back to food, but if I'd, all I'd known is the kind of somewhere deep inside that the only thing I am allowed to control or I'm able to control is food, then obviously that's what I've turned to and my weight, my food, my exercise, were the things I could control I've never actually been diagnosed with OCD officially but I've had very many therapists say to me would you like it adding to your list <laughs> like you're very well thank you I will keep it off uh, my records but if you could just help me with these behaviors but my all my behaviors that could be diagnosable under OCD are actually behaviors from anorexia and uh, metaphobia so um I, I didn't I didn't tally that one up to be honest but um I could have chosen to if I wanted it <laughs> yeah I mean that's that's interesting because obviously I talk about having OCD and how it predates my eating disorder but came after the um, initial seeds of emetophobia and there have been times in my life where my rituals that are completely unrelated to cleanliness you'd think it wouldn't be linked I would think 
by doing xyz compulsion i'm keeping myself in you know i'm not religious but i'm keeping myself in god's good books so god won't make me ill and obviously ocd can have that religious element but it wasn't always you know my ocd to uh, now isn't really related to the emetophobia and it wasn't in its initial development but yeah i think it's it's an interesting point about people having emetophobia and anorexia and by anorexia i mean anorexia not arfid because emetophobia and arfid are very strongly linked i think that's very common and again when i was when my eating disorder first got severe the the fact that I thought it would make it, my restriction would make it less likely that I'd be ill, that was a bonus, but it wasn't my primary reason for the restriction. That was, it was just really convenient, I thought. Um, and I think I've mentioned it on the show before that when I was in hospital the first time when I was 17, another patient came in with emetophobia who had restricted her eating purely for that, for fear of being ill. But she also had to do supervision with those of us with anorexia and she didn't really understand or relate to the rest of our experiences because it was an entirely different motivation and I think it is important to kind of recognize a distinction um, and for clinicians to recognize it. I was about to say I I was going to interrupt you apologies for saying and not only for us to recognize that with each other but for clinicians to to realize because the the restrictions I was making in my teens and in my early 20s were definitely led by anorexia, yet it was always masked by the fact I had a diagnosis of emetophobia. And I could quite easily say to people, no, I'm fine with my body. I am fine with my weight. I'm fine with my calorie intake. I am avoiding X, Y, and Z food to stop me being sick. And it was, you know, we know the lies that I said during anorexia. During, uh, whilst you're at the depths of the illness and it was a convenient lie but a convenient truth in a way you know that this was my diagnosis and you're so right and it can be so destructive and I had a, a friend of a housemate that had emetophobia and uh, when I was down in Bournemouth at university and she was naturally by the restrictions she had on the diet very thin and thinner than me um, and I remember her clearly and I remember being jealous of her and uh, wishing that my my phobia would have that side effect um but it didn't I literally was so like I can't even the Phoebe so jealous you know like um like inpatient jealous of the new girl you know a jealousy yeah. <laughs> um, you know which oh, I, that's a universal feeling for um anyone who's been in group treatment yeah and that's why I said it because I think it'll be relatable um in the we know that <laughs> um it's the if only clinicians could see that when people get admitted that they don't for some reason it happens day it happens on the revolving door of an eating disorders unit yet nobody seems to tackle it anyway um another day another rant this podcast is 95 percent rant so. okay that's good like that i'm exactly why you've got me on um but the <laughs> the distinction between the motivations you're so right are so very different and i know where mine mine are in different scales like I said actually my my motivation for avoiding metaphobia was counter actually no be positive Sarah kept me from (laughs) kept me from hitting crisis for so long that I should be thankful for it Um, as I mentioned the safe foods um, that I had actually kept me well Um, so I should be thanking my phobia 
um, rather than dissing it make friends with your enemy right but it's so complicated in the web and I remember drawing a web out and maybe so many people have done this in terms of therapy tasks is like draw the different me's and obviously the different illnesses make friends with them like maybe I just had a really lovely lovely therapist but we made friends with them and <laughs> we identified and we accepted them embraced them held them close let them go at the time by the way when that was pitched at me I was like rolled my eyes are you effing kidding me like what is this hippy dippy like but now like 15 years on I am like full-on yogi (laughs) it totally makes sense (laughs) I'm very conscious when I'm whether I'm doing a one-to-one or whether I'm doing groups at work not I'm not a therapist yet but when I do these groups I'm very careful to acknowledge that certain strategies or certain models seem like a load of cheesy nonsense I think it's so important to do that though because it just it sets your stall out doesn't it people know where you're coming from people know that you've got an awareness that certain things will seem out there to other people where they seem to connect with and it's hitting people at the right point it's pitching to your right audience at the right time and unfortunately in a group Mm -hmm. situation that's a lot harder because everybody's at different points in their recovery Um, but one-on-one that's just knowing your knowing your patient and actually this one therapist is Dr Dr Bishop um, he he knew me before I knew myself because I've since spoken to him when I was pregnant and since I've had my son and uh, and he knows that I am um, a daily yoga practice practicer practitioner and that that I meditate and that that I live a lifestyle that that reflects that and he said to me I knew you were and I was just like <laughs> no you didn't he was like I said he goes am I right and I, like, and I actually, some of the techniques that he used with me, I've spoken to people before in like a, in a less like uh, acute way, but like this could help you in day-to-day life type stuff. And I've been in uh, like lectures, yoga lectures with kind of yoga leaders. And I was like, they're literally quoting my therapist. I was like, what does he know? And like, but you know, he meditated, he did yoga. He was a, a practitioner of those things. And it, it just it made sense but he the way he was like yeah I knew you were like that and I was like oh did you like you know but then maybe he could maybe he etched away at some of the illness I saw that was the acute frontage of me and knew that within me was this person Um, and for that I'll be eternally grateful because he did um, contribute a lot to to my recovery but you know it's um, (laughs) just now I just think of some things he used to get me to do and he'd like even just breathing techniques and I was like you are kidding right like I'm still I still feel like that not gonna lie I'm not into that whole breathing thing I'm really not it it, it, honestly I'm not gonna preach to you but like on you find you find what works for you whether it's meditation breathing whatever yoga um like physical mental practice like you find what and if it clicks but it might never be that um and some people just aren't um and you might be one of those people that's like yeah whatever like my other half is so funny when he thinks I go he goes are you gonna go and do your yoga hippie witchy thing I'm like I am (laughs) um (laughs) I am with it yeah Yeah. but you know it's um like I said that's just again like you said about knowing knowing where to pitch pitch stuff with your with your patients um or with or with your friends or with fellow campaigners or or whatever like you know it's all different but I've digressed I apologize it's it just fascinates me that all this is kind of like it is relevant but in a roundabout way yeah I just want to touch on where you've kind of talked about um the emetophobia preventing you becoming any more unwell with anorexia and trying to frame that as a good thing but I think we've we've both kind of alluded to the fact we hated our emetophobia for preventing us from engaging in other eating disorder behaviors 
Um, and I truly, truly despised myself for not being not being able to engage in that certain purging behavior. And as someone who went through a period of a binge restrict cycle, I desperately wanted to somehow get the food out out of myself, but I couldn't overcome this phobia to to do it in such a way. And I thought maybe if I'm control in control of it, and if I um, initiate it um it won't be so bad and it's not something I ever did do in the end and I still struggle to feel grateful for that and even this far in my recovery part of me still wishes I could do that and when I've talked about that some people who have whether it be part of anorexia or bulimia they've said it's really horrible you shouldn't wish you could do that but it's still part of the illness that I had I can completely relate and how I despised myself and the attitude I had towards myself for for feeling like I failed in some way of not having this tool in my armory you know and that's probably where the exercise came in for me and and using other forms of of getting rid of food and I think that or, or getting rid of what I'd eaten uh, or making up for what I eaten, sorry. And I think that, yeah, like the, the it's so twisted and complicated. And I, not, even now I'm struggling to put the words out because I'm trying to make sense in my head. But I, I had a massive, like, thankful it stopped me slipping and then hateful that it stopped me engaging in activities um, and being, like, jealous of people that could either with a, with, with binge purge subtype or with... Uh, bulimia that that had this way that if they did have a binge that they could then get rid of it and that I was stuck with it and that somehow made me a lesser eating disordered person because you know if I was if I was really eating disordered if I was really ill then I'd have this um, abusive purge behavior as well but also being disgusted by people that did and I'm sorry if that offends people but I genuinely was like how can you do that like so it was really twisted because I'd like kind of go through this jealousy and hatred towards them for making them do that and you know friends that had got bulimia or or binge purge that I being scared to be around them and then getting annoyed at them this whole jealousy of eating disorders is just like still blows my mind um but you know I'd be away with people and there's certain people that I fundraised with that I still talk to that that suffer with bulimia and we'd we'd go away or we'd meet up or we'd do certain things or we'd be at like conferences or talking with about our eating disorders and our recovery and they would still be taking laxatives or they would still be doing uh, behaviors or destructive things to 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 initiate behaviors and I'd be like oh my god they're so hypocritical but then like being like oh my god I'm so jealous they've got that you know because it's more hidden than me starving myself you know (laughs) it's um yeah, and it's so sick that and that they're, they're, but also like you said like I'm also very thankful that 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 also isn't in my behavior bank <laughs> because actually I think I massive kudos to people that recover from that because I think it slips in and I know adults that have never really been diagnosed with eating disorders especially within the fields I've worked in gymnastics that that just do it and they think it's okay because they're on a diet or whatever and they just do it because it's you know they've got a slimming world the next day or some bs like that um you know it's uh, like it's like you said it's like a love hate it's a massive love hate isn't it and it's a really complicated like like other eating disorder aspects are so easy to understand <laughs> but you know this is one of those complications um and uh, and like i said sounds so hippie but like making friends with both of them 
doesn't mean that they're friends with each other <laughs> you know it's it's I'm the I'm the middleman but and that that comes that sounds really crazy but I totally have gone through personification of my illness by the way so to me that makes total sense I've, I've personified both of them and for them to be friends with me we all can't coexist in like this massive friendship group or well, sort of we are maybe that's how life is now um because someone asked me the other day actually recently because I don't talk about this is like the first thing I've done in years talking about all this stuff so it's probably why I've rambled um that I still live with anorexia I still live with emetophobia I I am of the school of (laughs) that recovery is not full recovery is not possible like I am in that school um because full recovery to me or maybe I was just idealistic on what full recovery was like and I am I said this to my dietitian when I took my son in to meet her before the pandemic really kicked that I used to think that when she said to me that I would be recovered that I wouldn't know calories anymore that I wouldn't weigh myself anymore ever 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 again that I would never care about my weight that I'd be totally body positive I'm not body positive I still weigh myself sometimes I still know what's in the calories in a stupid apple or whatever because it's been imprinted on my stupid brain for so long I still know um, that I feel guilty if I don't get out and walk or if I'm not active I still feel those things do I let it control to my life to a point in which my life is then dictated by those things? No, I do not. Have I managed to maintain a weight, to maintain a level of health that has enabled me to a get my periods back after eight uh, after eight years of not having them, to then conceive a child, to carry a healthy child, to then have breastfed a child for two years, and to cook for him and me and keep me alive whilst being a mum? Have I lost weight during that? No, I've gained it. Like I'm heavier than what I was when I conceived my son. Does that bother me? Yes, it does slightly. Am I doing anything about it? Like by restricting my food or by exercising? No, I am not. I have bigger things to worry about, like keeping a mini human alive. So for me, fully full recovery would mean that I would go out to, I'm saying Wagamama's because I was there the other day, would I go to Wagamama's and I wouldn't think about what I'm eating or feel any different about that food. But I haven't gone through 30 years of worrying to then that go away by the time I'm 40. I'm 37, not 40. Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't, but I used to think that recovery would be that me not caring about that. I care, but I just don't let it stop me, you know, and that's, no, and, that, and that's why um, I think you can live a recovered life the same as a, a recovered alcoholic can live a recovered life, but they probably abstain, you know, uh, I can't abstain from food. It's part of my life, but I just have to wait to live with it. Um, and I, the same with email. Um, maybe we'll have this conversation after my son's had his first sickness bug and I might feel very differently about it but he has not <laughs> yet um and he will continue to sandy back the trolleys at the supermarkets until he doesn't have one but sorry you were gonna say <laughs> no my picture of my recovery is very similar I think externally it would look like I don't care about a lot of things that I do still care about or at least have there's a presence one of the things I must abstain from is weighing myself that is a minefield can't be done am I body positive about myself no I'm instead of trying to feel better about my body right now I'm trying to make it a lower priority and some I do still remember the calories and quite a few things not not to the extent I used to but there's still that are very very permanently etched in there fruit especially weirdly yeah, I think it's probably fruit and veg and meat, which is really weird. I don't weigh anything anymore. Like, I literally don't weigh scale. I don't, like, someone said to me, do you feel what, how much porridge do you give your son in the morning? And I'm like, that son. much? <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, and they're like, do you, not, do you not know how much, how many grams of whatever he's having a day? Like, how much grams of pasta do you put on your son's plate? I'm like, literally don't give a shit. <laughs> like, I, he has, like, that, oh, to- no. toddler size. <laughs> 
you know, I, you know, less than me. Um, but toddlers, uh, toddlers are the intuitive eaters. They are. And it's amazing. So like, you know, he will go through, you know, like people think that toddlers are being fussy eaters. Um, I'm like, no, like he literally is eating what he feels like. If he doesn't want to eat, like his favorite thing is like fishless fingers, mashed potatoes, peas and trees, broccoli. And I'll make him that. And then the other day he was like, mama, I don't like potato. Mama, I don't like broccoli. Mama, I don't like peas, uh, but I do like fishyless fingers. And and I was like, no, no, you do like all those things, Harrison. But for him saying he doesn't like it is very intuitive in the moment. He just doesn't want that now. And like, mm. you know, and I'm not going to freak out like my parents obviously did. Um, yes, I am blaming them. But, you know, like my parents obviously freaked out about all this stuff. And I've told them they do and they still know they did. And, you know, we still have those conversations. And they're like, we didn't have anything to do with it. I'm like, you actually did. Um, <laughs> but and no, no spoilers for them on this one. But that I'm not like that my son so if he doesn't want that I'm like well what does Harris what do you what do you what do you want and he's like I want wheat to bix some peanut butter and whatever so I'll make him it because at the end of the day like he knows what he wants because he's eating intuitively and some days are hungry some days are not some days they eat like mm-hmm. absolute horses and some days he eats very little and and accepting that he's not in this little like rigid life it's so refreshing to see and that's why children are really good and if you look at look at him eat and and I still eat very meal plan and I said that I had that conversation with someone mm. the other day and I don't know about yourself but like obviously I've been out of hospital what like seven years and I've been a healthy weight for probably five of those uh, really help you know actual healthy weight rather than I'm going to get out of hospital healthy weight um yeah your body's your body's healthy not the BMI charts healthy. Exactly what I'm trying to get out. And um, and obviously, and if anybody ever tries, to, this is the best thing, by the way, about being a mom now. If anyone throws that back in my face and I'm like, no, I'm not too thin because if I wasn't too thin, my body wouldn't have carried a human being and I wouldn't have produced milk for the last two years to exclusively breastfeed him. So if you want to come back at me that I'm not on my body's healthy way, I think it, my body's pretty happy with me right now. <laughs> you know, like It's doing its damn job. I was about to go another motherhood rant there, but I, I won't about, <laughs> about the understanding with midwives and doctors uh, about. Well, I've done an episode about that. You might. Yeah, uh, just that's why I don't want you to cross barriers on it because <laughs> literally, it's a like literally, I could probably I'd probably do exactly the same episode. But you know, it's um, the the way that we eat has been scarred by the anorexia and the emetophobia. Like, and I accept that those scars will remain with me um as my little uh, personality traits whatever but do those scars define the way I live my life no um do I get mixed up in this like the waves of I'm not as I'm not as disciplined as I was with my food why have I let myself down by eating some of the said toddler's food why have I allowed myself to have a latte machine at home that I have like multiple coconut milk lattes a day when they used to be like a real fear food from like a fear food drink a fear thing for me because it was so um entwined with a milky drink for snacks <laughs> with a piece of fruit like which is like definitely an eating disorder unit thing but you know I I feel like annoyed with myself that I'm not like as rigid as I was and then I have to remind myself that by being rigid as I was I would not be a good mum I would not be present um I didn't think recovery was going to be like that. Like you said, you, you try and kind of make your body less of a priority. 
Um, I, I try, I always, I always say, I love the body neutrality movement in the, I hate the body. I do. I, I genuinely hate body positivity movement because it makes me feel shit that I don't feel positive about my body. And let's be honest, the things that we've gone through in our lives, we don't need anything else to feel crap about, do we? You know, it's um, mm. nothing to beat ourselves up about. And that, that's just personal opinion, complete personal opinion, but recovery, obviously talking after so long is really strange because I haven't had to put it into words for a long, long time, but recovery changed for me because I thought I was just going to be cured. Um, I have come to the acceptance that I won't. Um, do I wish that I could cook my son's birthday cake and eat a massive chunk of it because it literally tasted delicious and not care? Yes. Would I, do I eat it in care? Yes, I do. Yes. Um, do, do, I didn't have a miraculous recovery. Recovery is not miraculous or perfect. And do I wish I could not worry about my weight or, you know, overthink not weighing myself does that make sense not weighing myself is still a thing so it's obviously still bothers me slightly but do, but then as, as somebody nearing 40 I just I made a promise to myself when I was nearing 30 that it wouldn't impact the next 30 years of my life and I'm doing quite a good job of allowing that could I mute mums and society and the way that we should be bouncing back and how my stomach's changed and how that's not really accepted by by society um do I wish I could mute that would that make my life easier yes would I eat more cake if that was not in my brain probably yes um you know but it's it's really me um like I said I'm, I'm happy to live with those scars and the people around me are happy to live some of the people around me are happy to live with the scars and actually as I've got older the people that aren't happy to live with me the way I am thank you pandemic you got rid of them <laughs> like not no they're still alive they're just not near me <laughs> I qualify um but you know it's um the same like that brings me back to the email and the pandemic and everything and I just there's so much you've learned I think so many people have learned over the last you know like I said that have brought us from kind of March 2020 to February 2022 that that we um that we've learned about ourselves and you know learning to become a mum whilst having these these scar tissues in a way uh has been eye-opening scary overwhelming but eye-opening your tolerance for ignorance goes down <laughs> massively sleep deprivation and all that but also your your sense of responsibility for another human being goes up and that that keeps me on track you know even as someone who doesn't want children or at least doesn't want to bear children I always think if I do change my mind about being a parent, I'd like to go down the foster or adoption route, but I still don't foresee that. But no, even, even with that, I'm very conscious of trying to change the culture and change the landscape for generations coming after me, whether that be people I end up supporting as part of my future career or people who see what I post online or any of those things there's a there's a level of responsibility there and in regards to body positivity movement I respect it and I, I I see its worth but I'm not in it and it's also not my place to be in it because at the end of the day I'm a straight size white person in an able body um I know body positivity's not my not my remit it's something for me to observe and learn from and not infiltrate but I recently listened to um, the audiobook of The Body Is Not An Apology. And in that, it talked about, basically, it, it denounced body neutrality. 
And that I do not agree with because I'm trying to navigate with that neutrality. With the, yeah, I don't love how I look, but I'm actually learning to appreciate what my body can do. And again, I'm very privileged that I'm able-bodied and can say that. But I saw someone at an, a Pride event the other day who I know from the an eating recovery support group. And she was saying how she's doing much better. And although she's uncomfortable with the weight gain, she's also really appreciating the energy she has and being able to engage in life more. And I'm trying, I'm still, you know, I'm trying to eat somewhat more intuitively and less meal planny. Because again, for years, it was very much you have your breakfast, lunch and dinner and you have your three snacks and you have roughly the same thing each time. But along with that, I'm trying to manage my relationship with exercise and try and do that intuitively too. And now that I'm going to gym classes that I enjoy and not going to the gym to count how many things I do or the calories burnt or whatever, and appreciating, wow, my body can do this 45 minute class. A few years ago, even it couldn't have done that because I remember going to the gym a few years ago and I was in a bit of a lapse um, in restriction and how I had to leave a class because I physically couldn't do it. And now it can, trying to be appreciative of elements of it, even if how it looks is not, does not make me happy and does still make me think restriction is a good idea. I couldn't agree more that respecting what your body can do, whether that is bearing child um, or whether that is doing an exercise class or whether that is overcoming something else in your life that is related to your body. But, you know, and I had a really unhealthy relationship with exercise and I wish I didn't. I, w- I, I wish that I could go to a gym class without it being uh, intuitive exercise is not my thing. Hence yoga. I don't go to gym based yoga classes. I found a spiritual path into yoga because, you know, being okay with doing a yoga meditation class, yoga nidra, it's called yogic yogic sleep, like literally it's like bliss and it's a yoga class. It took me for a while, like five or six years ago when I started practicing to accept that that was a yoga class. Like I was like, what? Like, you know, and it's still there. And, and I had one yoga teacher that, um, that, that would be like, we're going to burn tonight. Like, we're going to like get a sweat on. You're going to do this. And I was like, literally, I walked out of the class. Not because I was like, that is not me. If you're going to talk about the strength in my warrior two or my, you know, the, you know, the, the, the shape that my body forms, which is very different to the person next to me, then we can talk. Like I can be in your class. You cannot be my yoga teacher. If you're going to beast me, not my bag. Um, I can't join a gym. I don't join a gym. Am I jealous of people that do go to the gym? Yes. Do I feel like negative about myself being lazy if I, because I can't do that? Yeah. But I also, like you say, you abstain from waiting. I abstain from going to the gym class. Um, I am building up um, running. I ran a lot like in recovery um lols um (laughs) (laughs) I was doing 10ks at like 10k underneath my goal weight um whatever you know like uh, with alongside people that were also doing eating disorder you know also had eating disorders which is I'm gonna do a marathon for B I have feelings about that don't even um like I I I did I (laughs) like it's so uh it's such a cliche you don't realize people don't realize how being how cliche they're being actually sometimes but you know being there seen it literally got the beat t-shirt to prove it but you know 
and feeling like it is like that I couldn't run it if I wasn't thin for B because why is she running for B um you know <laughs> she's fat in my head you know it's the the exercise paradigm has been really hard for me and and still is and especially postpartum to not to not bounce back into my pre-baby body because actually my pre-baby body was probably still quite unhealthy um you know I, I was having periods I was a healthy weight obviously to conceive and carry a baby but before I was pregnant like the year before I was pregnant or a year and a half there's a reason my periods still weren't there you know like um, I I feel very blessed very privileged to have got my periods back to be this old um and to have not had periods throughout my mid to late 20s and my early 30s um to then um start menstruating lot funny enough when I stopped running um <laughs> stop you know and ate more cake to have those back for my body to work be working the way it should as a cis woman like my body doing its job I I wish I'd done it earlier I wish I'd got that relationship earlier you know I wish that that happened earlier but to me in my head somewhere is going back to, to being healthier to me is going back like a number of kilos before I was pregnant mm. and it takes a it, it, it takes it's an internal dialogue that I remind myself of or I journal about because I've got a, a personal trainer that I work with I say personal trainer um for pelvic health um over the internet that said to me like the Sarah pre being a mother is dead like her body is dead her body is gone her body no longer exists that's not a thing like what what you can do now is from from this day onwards from birth onwards is just accept the new body work with the new body honor the new body in new ways because when you birth the woman the sarah the human that came before it's gone and you're like your mother you're when when baby is born mother is born you know and and, and that's actually something i've been working with that uh, i look at yoga videos myself which yoga is like a massive big part of my recovery and keeping on track and but i look at yoga videos myself before i was pregnant i'm like oh my god look like i'm in a crop top and look how thin i am like how thin i am or how toned i am and like i thought i was <laughs> thought i was big then and yeah and i only did the occasional crop top practice even though i was sweating my bum off i you know because i hated my body so much still um, and now i'll do a video or i'll i'll practice and i'm annoyed with my mom body and i accept that that body's gone and I can say that out loud but do I truly internally wish that I still had a certain body type or certain elements sorry of a body type um, yes I do like you know you look back it's like the whole kind of like stereotypical middle-aged woman looking back at a teenage self and wishing that she just accepted how beautiful she was back then I sort of do that um, in a less romantic way and this kind of leads to the body positivity, body neutrality. Like you said, there's a place like that's a, that's a thing. That's a group. I also don't, I'm also very much like you. I don't feel like I belong in it, um, but then I'm not meant to belong. Like I'm an able-bodied again, white, what do you call it? Norm size? What, what am I? Like, what am I like? <laughs> yeah, I go with, I, I, I use straight size, i.e. I can go into any high street fashion shop and pick out clothes. Yeah, that's probably a really good way of putting it because you, you are like a standard. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm still in the great scheme of things, regardless of my self-image, in the great scheme of things, I am smaller than average. A UK average is a 16. 
for example, and I could go to uh, someone, some doctors may well tell me to lose weight, but I have the privilege of, you know, being a quote unquote healthy weight. And also, yeah, I can probably still access healthcare. Like when I've gone, whether it be for a medication review or for any kind of, if I've had to go to the doctors and they say, right, get on the scales and I can say, oh no, thank you. <laughs> and they don't push for it. I think that in itself is a privilege. You're within the medical boundaries. Yeah. You're in the medical boundaries for that to be okay. Um, for you to have that privilege, um, uh, which is where I class myself. Mm. And, you know, some people, I wish they would not comment, but some people that say to me, oh yeah, you're still so slim and you have like, you haven't gained loads of baby weight and whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, can you, they're really unhelpful comments actually um because to me slim is a different meaning to you and they're like yeah but you're recovered don't you think the same as me about slim I was like no because my slim is probably really unhealthy probably it is really unhealthy and that the connotations with slim thin blah 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 they'll always have a different meaning to people like you and I that have been very very ill and also it just reinforces the importance of it because there's a there is an importance of thinness and um you know the ideal body type in society overall and someone with an eating disorder may take that to a new extreme and so someone's i one person's idea of slim may be a uk size 10 whereas our idea of a slim would be a uk size 2 at one point in our lives and you know at this point i'm just like i can't believe anywhere stocks a uk size 2 or 4 I literally it drives me insane like I go into places I'm like what is this like crop top that would fit my toddler like and why is it in an adult Mm -hmm. shopping center um and actually if a crop top is in that and someone says yeah but it fits like like a you know prepubescent teenager well get it out of here because it's really inappropriate there's me being total judgy but there's some things I think that like it's it's Mm. the the Sarah that was born as a mother literally has got so judgy (laughs) like like I'm proper Karen sometimes about being a mom (laughs) uh, you know it's um I I can't help it it's like a trigger but you know the but you're right there's different definitions and people uh, but then that that's a whole new episode <laughs> yes so every but, episode it's all every episode of this podcast ends up being okay I'm gonna have to just do another one about this and then another one about that but that, that's the importance of it that's the depth of it's the depth it's the depth of your uh the subject area it's the depth of our lived experiences and the 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 common thread that binds but the the absolute minefield that everybody's experience is slightly different we've said multiple times through this podcast this episode that we have got very similar pathways very similar traits uh, etc but like we also have very very different journeys and different journeys out and like the the common bind between the two emetophobia and anorexia that obviously kind of uh links us more than it does with other people probably in terms of the connecting about knowing the ideas like there's so many times we've gone like yeah me too today and but there's also so much that will be so different for both of us that that you could go on for days about all these subjects because there's so many nuances um but as long as people are being honest and authentic um about a their the battles and b their recovery 
then then I'm okay with that and I'm really accepting and actually I still love learning like I said I still follow quite a lot of people on Twitter that are doing disorders campaigning or talk about the subject area but there's also a lot of people that I blocked muted unfollowed um, after I considered myself sort of recovered um, because also I was um, living in this definition of myself through my recovery and it was really unhelpful and that's I don't know what made me say yes to talking today because it just did. I did. Um, but, you know, it, it's also important to keep talking. It's also important when you've had some distance from it to then speak again because you see it with a different set of eyes. Like, I think I did a video about emetophobia for Eating Disorders Awareness Week, like 2014, 15, whatever. And I watched it back on YouTube the other day. And the way I was talking would be sort of similar to what I'm saying now, but very, very different. And it's a lived journey. And that's why if you come back to it at different points and you're not completely re- saying the same thing over and again you find a new perspective on it um, which is what I felt like it's been really really uh, strange but wonderful to speak to you today about it and again the dynamics of being a mother Um, because did I think I'd be a mother when I probably first came and we first started talking probably not Um, it was never on my agenda really like I wasn't a a mommy type I never really planned show I thought it's something I'd do but actually emetophobia meant that I was like oh yeah like I'm gonna risk morning sickness like I'm gonna risk childbirth like I'm gonna risk a little human vomiting on me when I can't do it like I literally meant to care for him like I'm definitely not mother Teresa like I'm not <laughs> I'm not like I'm like the worst nurse ever like when someone's ill I'm like get away from me thankfully we're, we're touch word of stayed a covid free house and like i said to my partner i was like if you get covid i like i'm the worst and he's like literally might you you get annoyed at my hay fever sneezing so i know what you're going to be like if i get covid um but you know it's you, you come from a, a a changed perspective and it you, you see things differently i don't know it's just it's quite refreshing uh, really um but being being a mom like all the odds were stacked against me ever being pregnant um and ever mm. wanting to be pregnant Um, But funnily enough, my birth doula, I had a doula um, through my pregnancy and birth and she's got emetophobia as well. And I said to her, like, like one of the things with birth is it can make you vomit because it's an intense process. Your body also needs to get rid of anything that it doesn't need to then focus on getting the baby out. And I did. Obviously, I had like peppermint essential oils. I had mints. I had chewing gum. I like I had like my like had a defeat I hit no birth so I had like a mantra that was about like not being sick I was like please don't have diarrhea because that can happen but uh, sorry because that's trigger warning Uh, but you know it's all these things I didn't I didn't get morning sickness but did I eat a lot of ginger sweets to prevent it because I thought that would I was like yes absolutely I like got these ginger sweets they literally should have given me an ad or like uh, whatever on Instagram because I talked about them so much in pregnancy my dentist did not thank me for that one but you know it's um you know all these these things um and I said to her, like, how are you a doula when you're dealing with like women that are going to be sick during childbirth? She was like, you won't be sick. And she, plus, she was like, plus, I can't catch that. She's like, I can't catch you being pregnant. Sick. And I was like, that is massive. Like, she's so true. Like the, the morning sickness is not a bug. Like you were probably, you probably um, experienced the, the ultimate fear, but it's not a bug. So I was kind of like a bit better. Okay with that. Um, luckily mm. I didn't, I didn't suffer. And then I wasn't sick in um, during childbirth thankfully for me I'm my doula but she said that you know with she's got four children and she, with her children she um 
she accepts that if they have a bug, they've got a bug. Um, but she she puts them in their bedrooms when they were younger. She puts face masks on. She like got their dad to help out, and you know, and, and she antibacks them, and she like quarantines her children basically. <laughs> and I said that's so going to be. But she said, you know, they make they they they're all fine. None of them have got a phobia of sick or whatever. But like. He, but she found coping strategies she's like mid-40s and it still is part of her life obviously and we we both said as well we're thankful that it wasn't one of the symptoms of covid because I would have been a lot more scared of the virus if it had been um I would have literally told myself I was like a, a vulnerable person that had to stay in like 24 7 but I wasn't and it wasn't thankfully and but she, her, her advice to me was you know like you you will find ways to cope that are not destructive like if you've got a supportive partner they will help you out if you are honest about where your limits lie like I joked that I'm you know that I'm I'm not a Florence Nightingale I'm not a nurse I'm not uh, I'm never gonna be but I'm okay with that and when when my son is a little bit older I will hopefully not have to explain to him but if he witnesses me be anxious about it then then I will because I've explained everything else to him in my life so far um I mean he doesn't quite obviously grasp <laughs> like food in a destructive way yet and hopefully you never will mm. but will I tell him about eating so yes I will because we will have that open dialogue do I stop people telling him already that he's oh he's so ch- he's, he was a big baby but you know we're so chubby and someone said to me don't worry he'll slim down I was like funny funny enough I, I really wasn't that bothered like someone said to me today oh he, he 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 can tell he's growing up now a little bit into a toddler because um he's definitely lost weight I was like actually he hasn't lost weight because he's growing massively fast uh, because that's what kids do when they're two um and this was a family member and I was like I'd never even looked at my son in a weight gain or loss way and I don't appreciate you doing that and it you know oh you know he's he's quite um chubby for a vegan baby what Uh, i mean don't get me started on the idea that vegan equals clean eating and vegan equals weight loss i remember years ago when i still worked as a i was a barista in a large coffee chain and i was probably markedly smaller than i am now i was again i was in a good state of recovery but also your body changes from early 20s to late 20s and again from your early 30s to Um, late 30s try again yeah (laughs) so you know bodies change all the time if you allow them to do what they need to Mm do but yeah I was one of my colleagues would always say oh you're so slim because you're vegetarian that this makes zero there's like there's no connection there at all people say to me sometimes like um oh god give me write down what you eat in a day I need to know you stay so slim and I saw an old primary school teacher in in, I moved back to my hometown when I was sick um and I've stayed there and I met my partner here and we have our children we're raising him here and when I moved back she said to me she went oh you were always such a chubby child like how have you ended up such a slim adult I need your 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 secrets right right so I went but mind, I wasn't I was a gymnast I, I was not I was was I chubby I was about to try and qualify. I don't know. I was just a normal sized kid. Wasn't skinny, mm. wasn't chubby, just normal sized kid. And um, kid size. And it, I went, well, um, my secret miss is the fact that I'm still in hospital with an eating disorder. <laughs> and her face like was like, oh my God. 
um that's the thing I love I love that um I wish I don't really get comments like that anymore but and I wish I'd had I would have been willing to say those things when I did get those comments because now I don't care no no but it was so refreshing at the time but then that was, that was my bitterness and anger coming out at her and stuff and other, and, and <laughs> other people um you know and I just don't comment on my weight or my child's weight, please, at all. And or anyone's. The, let's just let's throw that out there. Or anyone's. Or anybody in this. Yeah, any human being does not need their weight commented on, especially when you're pregnant. I was like, oh, how have you stayed so slim during pregnancy? I'm like, uh, I don't know. I've just at the normal. Like I've ate slightly more than I used to because I know I'm growing a human. And yes, did I look at the calorie, the extra? They, the NHS does tell you this, and they tell you for a reason about the extra food it takes to grow a baby. And did I find that quite triggering or do I have a partner that's really supportive? Yes. Did I let him cook for me at that point? Yes, because could I physically at some times, because I was worried about it, make myself like three slices of toast instead of two? No, because I found that quite triggering, even, you know, obviously three years ago. But it's giving someone that that you love that trust to, to do that for you and um, to overcome certain things. And I had got a test for gestational diabetes when I was like kind of 30 30-ish weeks pregnant and the the doctor <laughs> the midwife said to me like a stat not my actual midwife it was like a locum midwife said to me well um I'm gonna have to test you because you're, you're looking rather large can I weigh you and I said well actually I've got a plan if you read it I'm not being weighed for my pregnancy unless it becomes an issue that I've lost weight for example and I need to be under perinatal mental health teams and I hadn't and she said I really need to weigh you because there's, there's something you are doing with your diet that means that you have got gestational diabetes. And I said, well, I, A, I haven't got it yet. You haven't tested me. And B, what is it? And she goes, well, do you eat a lot of sweets? And she named the sweets. And do you eat a lot of chocolate and sugary things? And I said, well, actually, no, I don't. And then my partner went, well, she's vegan. And then this woman was just like, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. That means that means you must have a really healthy weight. And I was like, you know, there's vegan sweets and chocolate, right? Like I could that isn't the reason and it's because at the point and I said well actually I've got a history of anorexia and I consider myself to have a balanced diet so and I didn't have gestational diabetes I just had a very big baby with lots of water around him but that was so unhelpful that's probably the only time I felt triggered in pregnancy uh, and it was because it was a, a locum midwife the same as when somebody was talking to me about um sickness or something and I remember just saying I just can't I, I don't have this conversation but then I'm very thankful that I'm quite assertive very outspoken um and confident um to do so because I think in those circumstances if a lesser uh, a person with less confidence or a less assertive person um had been there they would have been really triggered by that you know and those clinicians need to to know that and that's one thing I've done throughout the whole of my recovery the reason I've, uh, I've spoken out for the last kind of like decade is because I know that the reason I'm here is because I bloody fought for it like I fought for the care Mm -hmm. when I was a teenager I fought for the care I fought for not being sectioned in London because it was the wrong place for me to be sectioned um and I ran away here and then when they said that you're going to be on a six-month waiting list I said "Um, if you put me on a six-month waiting list I literally won't be here like do you want me to die Mm -hmm. like you see me now you diagnose me now you treat me now I mean I thought that I was going to go away to the Middle East in the November when I was diagnosed with severe anorexia in the August like (laughs) another planet they were like if you fly you will die and I'm like uh no I won't I'm not anorexic what is anorexic anyway you know I was at that stage of recovery (laughs) denial I just knew I needed help because I was so sick of being where I was at and um Mm. uh, but from that point onwards I fought for everything I 
fought for care but then that's because like you if you've lived with these things for you get to breaking point don't you you get to the point where you are hey help me now and then that's why I've carried on talking about it but um I mean there are plenty of people and I was one of them who said hey help me now and then they said no maybe Scott said hey help me now I'm a journalist (laughs) (laughs) I don't know I have I have a little bit of me now working in the mental health trust that I am under I have that bit of leverage actually so for example the um my referral to the autism diagnostic service has only happened because I got to name drop one of the um psychologists in the team who told me to get referred it's but it shouldn't be like that should it like we'll digress again further on here on the whole issues of the system but like it shouldn't need you to be like that it, it, it should be the uh, the people get the right diagnosis at the right time which is the whole old f- phrases and I, I mean that in both sections I mean that in the emetophobia meaning the misdiagnosis of anorexia and the anorexia meaning that the emetophobia was not treated um and but just happened to be a handy little byproduct in that it helped each other you know um hands in hands but the mental illness we know are so complicated and so varied and so um complex when you're in them especially anorexia being the sly little fox it is the you need astute uh is that the word clinicians to mean that even the people that aren't vocal get the help they need um and mm-hmm. that you that you take that per you don't just take that per- I've got a friend at the moment um who has just spent you know seven days in, in an acute ward um not an, an eating disordered ward but an acute ward as an emergency referral and she won't mind me saying that you know she has got an eating disorder she's got PTSD she suffers with depression she has suicidal tendencies and thoughts like she was put in a ward where that was making her eating disorder behaviors come out because of the lack of control or the lack of understanding mm-hmm. that she had and the comorbidity that she's got um she's just being failed and she's a very um she's shy and she's uh you know she's like my little sister and she she's confused she's in pain she's her and the the fact that services don't recognize that um the we we've been quite jovial about the the link between both the phobia and the eating disorder today but the serious end of the stick is that that also means people don't get the right care because you can't have one thing trigger the other you can't trigger the emet in somebody by making one of their challenge foods a food that really triggers because underneath it all is an anxiety isn't it underneath it is try something to stop a feeling like for me anxiety the the anxiety of vomit uh, is where that came from which is where you know it's all like anxiety was underneath everything for me really really severe anxiety and panic disorders and you can't as somebody say well you need to get better you need to do this um if it's going to trigger that one and then bring the anxiety Mm -hmm. up where that coping strategy comes to that and we've joked about it today linking in but the serious side of it is that the fact that if we do not get our head around how these things are interwoven then how are we possibly going to get the right care for people whether I mean peer support like you and I being open on social media about it or whether it's you know behind a closed therapy door or in group therapy unless we're willing to kind of understand accept embrace and then work with those comorbidities then how the hell are we going to make a fully kind of well human at the end of it yeah I have literal not at not here but at my desk at work because I 
did eating disorder training for um, the ward teams mm. um, just because it needed doing and no one else was going to do it. So I did it. And I do have actual statistics in terms of the rates of comorbidity with eating disorders. And I think bulimia is the eating disorder with the highest likelihood of a comorbidity. Mm. But I also know of the local eating disorder team here denying people help because of comorbidities. But most people do. Most people with eating disorders do have a comorbidity, whether it's predating like mine was or almost as a result of um, potentially. And the, the community mental health teams and the eating disorder teams are not well linked they are so separate which is ridiculous that's why I slipped through the cams and the eating disorders thing like that's where that's completely where I slipped through as a child and um, I've spoken at like um, younger minds events before about it I've spoken at kind of cams training about it that my god these children are in your hands that you can prevent being adults that are pretty messed up you know exhibit a being myself at the time and but to understand and to to accept that these like you said like either predate or that or run concurrently you know the at the same time and until and I'm thankful that you give that training to people on wards because like right now it's happening like my friend has literally was discharged last Wednesday and there was no accepting that you know she was discharged uh, like late in the afternoon and never given her breakfast at the time she asked for her breakfast or given the it in the the plates and the ways that she wanted to be served to her and until we understand and have those kind of flexibilities to allow that she's gone in for one thing at crisis point to keep her alive and safe and she's coming back out being triggered her eating disorder being kind of um re- like a slight relapse not a relapse you know a slight lapse in her behavior like how is that happening like how is that happening like like you said that there is statistics on comorbidity uh, that that need to be accepted and embraced and you know um and and dealt with and actually they feed each other don't they They, you know they can feed they do feed each other and whereas we've spoke quite positively about you know help them working with each other to to overcome certain things like the reality is like they also keep a lot of people there um I actually always say I feel like one of the lucky ones like I have quite a nice little set of like illnesses to deal with (laughs) (laughs) like they they all sort of like they're all sort of very, you know, they play nicely together. Um, and I've been able to like manage their behavior, like a set of children. And like, you know, I, I feel very lucky for that because there's another set of illnesses and I've seen through people that I know with them that just are so destructive and so, uh, so much harder to balance. I mean, I'm not keen on my, my comorbidities to be honest. Yeah. And that's where like, it, it like, I wish I could give you my set and like help you with that. And because they are, you know, they're all right. I can't remember just said they're all right. They're, they've been pretty fucking bad to me, to be honest with you. But like, you, do you know what I mean? They all like the anxiety uh, disorder, the panics, the anorexia and the emetophobia all are sort of like, they can work together and they all have the same traits and they all like whatever. Um, and it's, I'm making it sound like it's been a breeze getting uh, to this point, but it hasn't. Um, and it's taken a lot of work but they, they they exist they're there that you can have a bunch that trigger each other when you have this domino effect or you have um a bunch like mine that that you can help overcome at the same time and 
we we start the conversation by pinpointing the time like I know the the panic that I had at the time that was a trigger for my disorder and they've spoken quite a lot about PTSD and the way that I've the fact that I remember so vividly what happened and I was triggered to that point at any point that I panicked mm-hmm. has very much a PTSD type trait would they have diagnosed somebody with PTSD back in the late 80s early 90s no <laughs> there was not enough understood about the not being like a world war ii veteran or a vietnam veteran to, to then diagnose with a seven-year-old with that um but but that would probably get talked about now and that's progress for me because actually i could have got you know a better treatment plan earlier on with that but you know the, the fact of the matter is you know december 92 happened for me it's led me down a path where um i've had a really rough time of things in my you know different periods of my life it, it's made me a bit of an an odd one out at times but it's also made me exactly who I was meant to be and I'm okay with that like no I'm nobody I'm not I'm not okay with some aspects of my diet I'd like you said I'd like to eat more intuitively <laughs> from time to time rather than a blooming meal plan they have they have abuses but they also get in the way don't they you know and absolutely I just keep mustering through the best way I can to be honest with you um and then just hope I don't get sick <laughs> that's it that's a good good place to end because I agree like as awful as many years of my life have been I can't imagine being anyone else other than Mm. what I am right now and I wouldn't be how I am right now if it wasn't for those experiences and again another thing I do talk about with patients at work is how some positive has come of it we don't have to be grateful for it necessarily but silver linings I guess the very fact that you're sat with your patients is testament to the person you have become because of what you've been through and I feel like you know lived experience like my Dr Bishop who I named dropped earlier and I'll do it at this final bit is the reason that he worked for me is he recovered from OCD and anorexia he got it like Mm. I people have doubts about people like I couldn't work in your field because I would find it tr- triggering it's like that sounds like a really weird way to think but I, I couldn't do it like I've told you I'm not a very good nurse and I'm not I care but I don't care that much and yeah <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> it needs people like you there to, to understand that to understand the complexities to be the person in your your service that understands the complexities um that has these comorbidities that that don't really get on for you because then that that will make you the therapist that you will go on to be and you need to accept that that is you and you have become you because of that. I would, I'd be, I'm a much nicer person because I had a complete crisis than I would have been <laughs> if I hadn't. I'm much nicer. I'm much more empathetic. I'm much more um, tolerant. I'm much more willing to understand things I don't understand because you've had to understand the understandable in an anorexia, you know, in recovery. It's made me a much nicer person. And actually in a sliding doors, 90s film reference alert, in a sliding doors moment, if I hadn't have got ill and had to have moved back to my hometown and had this awful time moving back in my parents in my late 20s, which was, I mean, see Twitter feed from 2012 and 13 for that one. Uh, But to not have that experience, I wouldn't have met my partner back in my hometown where he also moved back um, to. We would not have met. We would not have fallen of love. I wouldn't have the house I have today. I wouldn't have my son if I'd stayed in my pathway in London, not got ill. So I can thank my disorder for that because it made me reevaluate. I'm here today and I'm, I'm like, I'm very, the universe had plans about it. 
and it did and you 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 have to be thankful for those things um there's a community of people I wouldn't have known like you said at the beginning Alona because if I hadn't had the eating disorder we wouldn't have crossed paths you know it you know you have friends people uh I parts of your life that that are a result of what you've been through um including your careers in both of our circumstances so you know positive silver linings yes. like you said um which is the nice kind of like uh nice way to sum it up really thank thank you emetophobia thank you anorexia you pretty sucked but you know you've done all right in the end it is kind of the way <laughs> I see it but you know like you said like I'd be a much, I'm a yeah. much better person for it so <laughs> I, I mean I know we, we we need to wrap up but that just made me think people always say that people become bullies because they've got stuff going on in their own lives but all the people who were bullies to me were pretty cushy so um, yeah. maybe they needed to deal with some stuff in order to become nicer people. Yeah, well, maybe they should. And I, th- <laughs> I do think that people say that, oh, yeah, bullies will go through that because they've you know, taken out their thing. I think basically bullies, if we can get bullies into therapy, they, they've definitely got issues because there's something going on there that makes them so cruel to people. Um, and I, I'm going to go right now and tame my white male offspring to make sure that he never turns out to be one of those people <laughs> but you know at the moment he loves pushing people but then they're toddlers but you know like you said like people people do certain things and act certain ways and bullies have got this uh, or they, they must have been through something or you know, they've actually come across quite cushy sometimes they need reality checks like you like like I said I'm a nicer person I probably would have ended up a bully if I hadn't have been so nervous or skip school because I thought I was going to catch a tummy bug <laughs> so thank you thank you for emetophobia yeah. for not making me a horrible person <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> you know it, it could have been very different couldn't it um so I don't know it's uh we just we've got to live we with don't know we don't know we will never know and I think that me trying to work out if I'd done something differently or said something differently or uh, could have ended me in a different way or you know but it, it is what it is isn't it like isn't like you can't control the past you can't control the future like you can only control what you're doing now as long as it's not food or exercise you know in a healthy control way within um, reason within reason um you know it's it's just life isn't it there's as soon as you realize um it, it's not just about you your body and I will shut up in a minute but my therapist said to Wendy said to me um who saved my life she literally saved my life um said to me there's an Eleanor Roosevelt quote that is you wouldn't worry about how much people thought of you if you realize how seldom they do and if you realize that nobody else is thinking about you they're thinking about themselves you won't worry so much about what they thought of you and it's so true and I went through my life worrying about what other people thought of me whether it be my weight my fear my phobia my panic attacks whether they'd bully me whether they wouldn't if they loved me if they didn't and all the time they're just muddling through life themselves so people don't worry Mm -hmm. about you people don't think about you because they're thinking about yourself like you are and if I'd known that when I was um 10 I might have stopped worrying so much about everything including worrying <laughs> so but I will shut up because we've been talking for absolute ages it's been amazing it's been great speaking and like after so long about stuff um and yeah it, it, it's nice to meet somebody that we can talk objectively a little bit more yeah I mean I've 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 thought about you know I've been doing this podcast for nearly a year granted I've had quite a few months off but considered whether I want to do an episode on emetophobia doing this kind of thing I think about people who it would be great to have on and whether there's anything particularly you can talk about so I'm really glad that we found something to talk about and we've 
certainly gone around the houses and talked about so many other things. Um, but just like I said to you at the beginning, I want this to flow like a natural conversation. And that's how we end up talking about so many other things other than the topic I'm going to put in the title of this episode, you know. Um, so thank you so much for all of your time. And I'm so glad we've managed to sort of meet. This is this is meeting in 22. This is this is definitely meeting in 2022. It's like what it's about, isn't it? It's no dodgy kind of meetups in a cafe somewhere anymore. It's, this is this is meeting. Nine or ten years. Yeah. Where has the time gone? That's crazy. Well, I've spent a good portion of that in recovery. So I'm gonna I'm gonna run with that. Yeah, that's been really that's been yeah, me too. Well I'm considering how unwell I was uh, how unwell I was when I listened to you on the radio back in 2013. Um and to think to think that I didn't plan on being alive for much longer then. And here we are nine years later talking about all of this. That's like phenomenal. That honestly, Phoebe, that is like without sounding completely patronizing, that is phenomenal. I'm also very honored because everything I've done is to uh is to help other people. And I, I think I've I've said that I don't care. I clearly do, or I wouldn't reach <laughs> out. And and as long as you're distant from me. But like, you know, it's um, you know, I, and that means a lot. And and like you should be so freaking proud of that that recovery over the last nine years as am I like that nine years has been meeting my partner and buying two houses and having pregnant having a baby and all the all the things that I've done in in that time which which is nice to be reminded of the difference I made when I was you know only two years into recovery then and had a long way to go so so thank you for saying that like I will go away thinking positively about that time in my life when I was just muddling through like everybody else so thank you (laughs) and thank you for coming on it's been lovely